At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Well, let's continue to worship this morning as we listen to God's word and respond in faith. And to do that, we're continuing in our Christmas sermon series, Gift Wrapped, we've called it. Gift Wrapped, from longing to lavished. And this morning, as we work our way through this series, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, The books of Moses end with Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, and then Judges, and then the small book, Ruth, and then 1 and 2 Samuel. If you see 1 and 2 Kings, you've gone too far, come back, 1 and 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to read the first 17 verses. But the idea uh, through this sermon series is that we are unwrapping the entire story of the Old Testament, so pretty ambitious, but we're going to go for it. Hang with me. We are unwrapping the entire story of the Old Testament leading up to the arrival of the promised Savior, the promised King, Jesus of Nazareth. So oftentimes, we don't realize it, but the Bible is a story with characters, with plot, with conflict, with climax, with a beginning, middle, end. It is a grand story written over the course of a thousand plus years with numerous different authors, but it ultimately ties together as one grand story. And the Old Testament unfolds as a progressive story leading up to the Christ, the coming king and his birth. And the way we're unfolding or unwrapping this story is by looking at the different covenants God makes throughout the Old Testament. So first, we looked at God's covenant with Noah and all of creation. Then we looked at God's covenant with Abraham and this particular group of people, the Israelites, Abraham's descendants. This all took place within the book of Genesis. And from there, we followed the story of Israel as they were enslaved in Egypt and how God in his covenant faithfulness raised up a man named Moses to redeem Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And we saw last week how when the Israelites were right outside of Egypt at Mount Sinai, God reaffirmed or renewed his covenant with Israel through what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And this covenant with Israel really builds off of the Abrahamic Covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, in the Abrahamic Covenant, God says to Abraham that he is going to bless all the nations. He's going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's descendants. And in the Mosaic Covenant, God really clarifies what this is going to look like. He says to Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
So it's as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation that Israel is going to shine the light and truth and hope of God to the surrounding nations. And the idea is that when the surrounding nations see this holy nation, when they see this kingdom of priests mediating the presence of God through worship and righteousness, these surrounding nations will be drawn in and they'll want to join in worship of the true God and they'll be blessed So then after that mountaintop covenant ceremony in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus is the book right after Genesis, right after that, God then leads the people in construction of what's known as the tabernacle. Have you ever done a read through the Bible in a year plan? Man, that back half of Exodus is grueling because they're building this tabernacle. Everybody complains about Leviticus, but man, the back half of Exodus, whoo. And after all that excitement in Egypt, (laughs) well, the tabernacle was essentially a tent for worship. It was a portable sanctuary. You remember the Israelites were out of Egypt, but they weren't in the promised land yet. They still had a long way to go to travel and a long time to travel before they would make it to the promised land. So God provides for them a movable worship location so that they can worship God as they go. And central to this worship setup is what is known as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this chest that had inside of it these covenant documents written by God through Moses outlining their covenant relationship. Well, as Israel's story unfolds from there, they do eventually enter the promised land under the leadership of Moses' successor, Joshua, But after the book of Joshua, we have the book of Judges, and most children's storybook Bibles skip the book of Judges because it is no less than X-rated. Things go super sideways for God's people during the period of the Judges, and this extends into the next book of the Bible known as 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, things have gotten so bad that the Ark of the Covenant is actually taken by one of Israel's rivals, the Philistines. So this important part of Israel's worship and this important document communicating and clarifying God's relationship with his people, it's taken from them by their enemies. Well, it's during this time that God's people, Israel, start to implore God for a king. And in and of itself, this isn't a bad request. In fact, God had promised that he would provide a king for his people back in Genesis when the Abrahamic covenant was being established. The problem is that the people say they want a king like the other nations. They want a king like all their neighboring nations have. In other words, they want a king according to the worldly standards of kingship of the surrounding nations. A handsome king, a cutthroat king, a shrewd king, a dominating king. And so God in his justice gives them such a king, a man named Saul. Saul is the first king over the nation of Israel, but Saul's life is riddled with arrogance and paranoia and corruption and power lust. So God's teaching them a lesson, right? This is what you get when you ask for a leader according to the world's standards. 
So God eventually removes Saul from the throne in Israel and instead replaces him with a young, unassuming, underrated, not-so-flashy shepherd named David. David is God's choice to be king in Israel. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has defeated the Philistines in battle and God's people bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It's this huge milestone victory and celebration for David and for the people. And this sets up the scene in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be for the rest of our time this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we hear from God what has come to be known as the Davidic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant was through Abraham. The Mosaic covenant was through Moses. And now the Davidic covenant to David. Again, this covenant is really building off of those former covenants, but we'll get into the details as we go. So let's jump into this scene. The ark has just returned. David notices at this point that he as king is living in an awesome palace, but the ark of the covenant that's just returned dwells in a tent in the tabernacle. So David wants to do something about this. He wants to build a house for God, a temple. And he tells Nathan the prophet about this idea that he has. So let's read this whole scene straight from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Now when King David lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest, from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, Nathan, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, David, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Did I speak a word to any of them? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Nathan, say this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, David, the Lord will make you a house 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever had good intentions backfire on you? These scenarios in life where we mean well, we had a good heart, but the thing we said or the thing we did just didn't land like you'd hoped. Sadly, this is often the case around Christmas time when giving gifts, you know, the classic examples, one of the ones that comes to my mind is the husband who excitedly, graciously gives as a Christmas present to his wife an exercise bike. He's so proud of himself. That's what she said she wanted. I spent all this money, got the exact one she's talked about. Such good intentions. But the wife, she's like, oh, so you think I need to lose weight? And it's like, oh, uh, sorry. Several years ago, Meg and I were having our first Christmas as a married couple. And in the months leading up to Christmas, Meg had mentioned this company to me called Simple Human. It's a really neat company. They make household products but there's always a kind of twist, something a little different about their products that makes them cool and different. So she pointed out this company to me and the products they make several times. At the same time, Meg had also been complaining a lot about our trash can in the kitchen, our main trash can in the house. For whatever reason, I can't remember, she did not like our trash can at that time. So I put two and two together. Meg likes this simple human company that makes cool household products, and Meg does not like our current trash can, so I will buy her a simple human trash can for Christmas. A trash can for Christmas. I had good intentions, but it did not land like I had hoped, and we still laugh about it to this day, but side note, I gotta say, that trash can's still in our kitchen 12 years later and it's doing a great job. So a little redemption. Well, King David here wants to do something for God and he has good intentions. David puts two and two together. He notices that he lives in a lush palace, God lives in a tent, The Ark of the Covenant is in a teepee compared to David's royal residence. So he says, I will build a house for God, a place worthy of his presence. And when David shares this idea with Nathan the prophet, initially Nathan concurs. He says to David, go, do all that is in your heart. 
In other words, sure, yeah, go build this special dwelling place, a temple for God. But that night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And God says, send this word to David. And what does God have to tell David? Well, he starts off by asking this sort of confrontational, rhetorical question. He says, would you build a house for me? And then God reminds David. He says, I've been with my people since we left Egypt. We've gone from place to place, wandering our way towards the promised land during the period of the judges. Once we got into the promised land, throughout all that time, I never asked for a house of cedar. I never communicated my need for a permanent residence because I didn't need a permanent residence. I was with my people and able to do all that I intended. And then God shifts from talking about Israel experience coming out of Egypt to then recounting all that he had done in David's life. He says in verse eight, David, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, from there, that lowly spot, I made you king over my people, Israel, and I cut off all your enemies. I made your name great in the land, all of this, and never did I have or never did I need a huge, gaudy, impressive temple built in my honor. So the lesson it seems God is impressing on David's heart is that he doesn't need David's work. Indeed, God does not need our work. So this is a lesson in humility. King David is on the rise. He's defeated enemies. He's returned the Ark of the Covenant. He is trending upward. His fame is spreading. His poll numbers are rising. His approval ratings are high. And now he wants to do this great thing for God. And God says, hold on, buddy. I appreciate the sentiment, but I don't need your cool big building to live in. Now, you may think, man, this seems kind of harsh of the Lord. I mean, David has good intentions, right? He seemingly wants to do the right thing. Far as we can tell, he wants to honor God. But the Lord, in his wisdom, discerns something in David's heart that's perhaps not quite right. Below his good intentions, David must have developed some sense that God needs me. And God needs the service I can provide by building a house for him. And what God needs to do is address this in David. He says, you are my chosen king, David. And I love you that you want to serve me. But I don't need you to serve me. And so church, we should ask ourselves too. Are we approaching God acknowledging our neediness? Are we aware of our deep, internal poverty before God? Especially if, like David, the external circumstances of your life are on the up and up. Your kids are doing well. Your bank account may be doing well. Your reputation is solid. Your work is succeeding. God's word here is a reminder to us Stay in touch with the truth that we are fundamentally needy. We are limited creatures. Just a man. Just human. 
God is all sufficient. Indeed, God is self-sufficient. He knows all. He sees all. Nothing is impossible for him. Nowhere is too far for him. He has no needs. He doesn't need our work. In fact, as God continues on, we find out he works for our rest. God works for our rest from work. Look at what he lays out for David as he continues to relay this message through the prophet Nathan. Picking it up in verse 10. God says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So God says, not only do I not need your work, in fact, I've been working for you to give you rest. He says about his people, I've planted you. Instead of you wandering around, I've planted you in your own place, in the promised land, in Jerusalem. So you're no longer wandering around as you were before. And I've given you rest from your enemies. Egypt doesn't oppress you anymore. The Philistines don't disturb you anymore. He says all of it was to give you rest from your enemies. So I've watched shows like The Walking Dead, and I've seen movies like The Fugitive. These films that as you watch them, they stress you out because they pull you into the anxiety and the mental strain of always being on alert, of constantly being on the run. You gotta check your six because you never know when a zombie may creep up on your camp. You always gotta watch your backside because you never know when a U.S. Marshal played by Tommy Lee Jones is gonna finally hunt you down, Harrison Ford. And I think the reason these shows resonate with us is because we all have a sense of being displaced. We all have some sense of not being at ease in life, in our hearts. And we constantly have to work. We constantly have to fight to deal with the uneasiness in our souls, whether it's through working hard at religious duty, or maybe it's working hard to be well-liked, or maybe it's working hard to make a lot more money, we've all got something we're working hard at in order to achieve rest for ourselves. Well, God here is impressing upon David's heart, I work to give you rest. I don't need your work in fact, I work to give you rest from your work. And yes, God did this by eliminating David's enemies, the Philistines, and by establishing them in the promised land. But the climactic way that God worked for our rest was through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. He says this to a large crowd of believers and unbelievers alike. He says this. He says, come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, you who are laboring, you who are burdened, come to me and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Through the cross, Jesus takes the burden of our sin and shame. He takes the burden of us having to prove ourselves. He takes the burden of us having to earn our way into God's family because he earned our way in for us. God works for our rest, defeating our enemies and settling our hearts. Come to him in humble faith, in desperate dependence, and receive his rest. That's God's message to David. And that's God's message to us. But there's one more element here in this passage that really outlines what we refer to as the Davidic covenant. And we'll notice that as these verses progress, God goes from saying what he has done in working for Israel to give them rest to then start to talk about what he will do for Israel, what he will do for David. So let's pick this up, middle of verse 9. God says through Nathan, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David has said, God, I want to make you a house. I want to make a house for your presence to dwell in. And God responds by saying, I will make you a house, David. So again, we see how God is kind of confronting and humbling David in the process of delivering these covenant promises. And this is sort of a play on words. David says, I will build you a house of cedar. God says, I will build you a house. But the kind of house God has in mind is not a building, but a lineage or descendants. So like, for example, today, Queen Elizabeth of England, the current queen there, she is of the house of Windsor. And what it means for for her to be a part of this royal family of Windsor, for what it means for her to be a part of this house is that she's a part of the royal family of Windsor, going back several generations. So David is not, so God is not saying, David, I'm going to build you a big physical structure house. He's saying, I'm going to give you descendants. And he confirms this in verse 12, the very next verse. God says, moreover, I will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So this promise here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, this promise here is the crux of the Davidic covenant. God promises, God covenants himself to raise up a descendant of King David and God will establish the kingdom of this Davidic descendant. Now in the short term, in the immediate fulfillment of this promise, it's King Solomon. Solomon was David's son, 
who eventually took the throne after David died, the third king in Israel was Solomon. And then Solomon's son, David's grandson, Rehoboam, eventually takes the throne. But starting with Rehoboam, the monarchy is kind of in shambles. Rehoboam, the fourth king, leads Israel into civil war. And basically, things spiral downwards from there for Israel. Until several hundred years later, 600 BC, the entire nation is captured and deported by the Babylonian Empire. The whole nation is taken out of their native land into captivity, into Babylon. So at this point, the throne of David is decimated. The house of David is decimated. And that's why, crucial within the promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7, is that God seems to look past the immediate successors to David's throne. He seems to look past the likes of Solomon and Rehoboam and all the others who would reign for 10, 20, 30 years at a time. And he speaks of one who will reign forever. Listen again to what he says there in verse 16. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So there's going to be some kings, sons of David, who come and go, who rise and fall, like Solomon and Rehoboam and all the others in the lineage of David. But there is one son of David whose throne will never be threatened. There is one son of David whose reign knows no end. Corruption and division and death and sin plagued the kings who followed in the line of David. But God says, I will provide one who is totally righteous. He'll defeat even death and his kingdom will never fall. And friends, the claim of the New Testament and the heart of the gospel is that Jesus of Nazareth is this promised king. In Jesus, God provides a forever king. Listen to the announcement made by the angel Gabriel. This is recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 33. Luke writes this, and Gabriel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, Gabriel came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He 
will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Jesus the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob or Israel forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This messenger of the Lord is saying to Mary, the Davidic covenant is being fulfilled in your womb. The long-awaited descendant of David who will take the eternal throne is conceived in you. This year, certainly as much as any other, has exposed in each one of us a longing for a leader. We want a head man, a captain, a chief, a ruler, a president, a prince, a king who will take us to the promised land, who will fulfill our political dreams, who will advance our economic aspirations, who will stick it to our enemies. There's this longing in the human heart to be led, to flourish, to feel safe under the rule of a good king. Well, church, I hope we know the earthly candidates to fulfill this longing in our hearts, they will all fail us ultimately. Their administration will end and we will be left wanting. But the angel says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And the angel was just echoing ancient promises God made to David centuries before. David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Church, we have a king who leads with more wisdom than any earthly ruler. We have a king who loves us to the point of laying down his life in our place. We have a king whose integrity is rock solid. He can be trusted. We have a king who fulfills our hopes not with temporary political and economic success. No, he satisfies the desires of our hearts forever because his kingdom is forever. Let's set our hope, let's set all of our hope in him and him alone, the son of David, the promised savior, the king of kings, Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Oh, Lord God, are not our hearts ready to receive good news? Oh, Lord God, are not our hearts ready to hear of a king who is wise, a king who is gracious, a king who is loving, a king who is forever? God, we are ready. We need to hear of him. And so we thank you for this word this morning. God, by your Holy Spirit, plant it deep 
in our hearts. Jesus is king and the king loves me. And he showed it by laying his life down on the cross. God, by your spirit, may we believe this and may we live it out that we have a king and he loves us. God, help us. Father, we rejoice now in this good news. So touch our lips that we may declare your praise to the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.